we really need in a sea of churches? Another church? I don't think so. I think what we need is a movement of God. Brace for impact. Cratering, impact cratering, studying the craters that were made by an impact of an asteroid or something is actually a job that people have. It's the excavation of a planet's surface when it's struck by a meteorite, asteroid. Impacts are instantaneous events. They leave very characteristic features like craters. And I probably don't have to tell you what a crater is, but since you asked silently in your minds, here's what a crater is. Craters are roughly circular most of the time that you see them. They're Excavated holes made by impact events. And I know this is obvious, but keep listening because all of this ties in in just a moment. The circular shape is due to material flying out in all directions as a result of the explosion upon impact. It's not like some people might think, me being one of those people, it's not as a result. Do you ever think that an asteroid or meteor that hits and makes these big craters has to be round because the crater's round? Don't raise your hand. I, I'll, I'll just be the one person that did it. I thought they had to be round, like little tiny sized planets or something to come. And that's why the hole's round. But that's not why at all. It's due to the material flying out in, in evenly in all directions that, that makes the, uh, the crater round like that. It's not a result of it having a circular shape. In fact, almost no impactors, and isn't that cool? That's what they're called. The things that make craters, the things that make the big hole in the ground are actually called impactors. I love that because I call you guys that sometimes. So are you calling us craters? Just listen. So they're called impactors. And I love the fact that it doesn't matter what shape they are and, and really kind of what size, they're going to make a crater. See, because that means anyone, if you're relating this to the church, and I'm going to do that, it's quite a stretch, but here it goes. Sounds to me like anybody can make an impact, young or old, square or round, in fact, red and yellow, black or white, as the song goes, anybody can make an impact. There is no one perfect type of person for making maximum impact. And that's good news for someone like me, someone like you. Craters are the most common surface features on solid planets and moons. Mercury and our moon are great examples of, of planets and moons that have tons and tons of craters on them. Now, what happens when an impactor hits? You probably think you know this, but here's detail what happens. When an impactor strikes the solid surface of a planet, a shock wave spreads out from the site of the impact. And again, I thought that was kind of cool in relating it to the church because that's how it should be with Christ followers who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of the power of God. When they hit, uh, and by that I mean when they hit a neighborhood, when they hit a place of work, when they hit their school, it should send out shock waves because they've got the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. In fact, it should be an oxymoron. It should never happen that a Christian enters a, a group of non-Christians and, and is around them for a while, and, and they don't know it. And it makes absolutely no impact on the people's lives around them. They will cause shockwaves, and that will spread out far beyond where they first began. Now, what does influence the size and the shape of a crater, do you think? Since it's not really the size and the shape of, a, uh, of an asteroid, of an impactor, what does it? This is the most important part. So if you haven't been fascinated up to this point about asteroids and impacts and all that, get fascinated now because here it is. We already learned it's not the shape. It's not the design of the asteroid or the meteor 
or the impactor, which I love, then what is it? The size and the shape of the crater and the amount of material excavated depends on factors such as the velocity and mass of the impacting body and the geology of the surface. The faster the incoming impactor, the larger the crater. The faster the power, the faster it's coming in. Now, an average asteroid comes in about 12 miles a second. Such a high-speed impact produces a crater that's approximately 20 times larger than the object. Again, all that's from the Lunar and Planetary Institute. That's as far as I'm going with that, so you can take a sigh of relief. It's similar, though, gang. A lot of stuff I just said to you is similar with the Christian faith. Some of us are making a deeper, more lasting impact than others for Jesus. But I imagine, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb, just take a stab, and I'm going to imagine that all of us want to. Is that too far of a leap? Is there anybody sitting there go, oh, no, 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 I want to go to church, and I don't want anybody to know I'm a Christian. In fact, I've got my salvation. I don't want anybody to know anything about me. I don't want to make any impact. I don't even want to know I'm alive. I really doubt that. I think you probably want to make an impact. But what makes you or I, getting away from asteroids now, what makes you or me an impactor? That's what today's about. Today I'll show you in our four-part series, Brace for Impact, this week is how to make a deeper one, a deeper impact than just a light, fluffy one. Deepen is the name of the message. If you want to open up your notes and follow along here, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now you can start from the back and you'll get there a lot quicker. Start from Revelation, just start making left-hand turns and you'll get to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. While you're getting there, let me pray for us today. Father, this is so important for us as a church. As we start out, God, it is so important that we realize that we need to not just claim our salvation, sort of our get-out-of-hell-free card. In fact, there is no such thing if that's all it means to us. But, God, there's a response to so great a salvation that makes sense. There's a response to so great a love that you've shown us that proves we are, in fact, in your family. And, God, a lack of response may, may show us that we're not really in. So, Lord, as we talk about how to deepen our impact, Father, I pray that it will do two things. I pray that those who are really not in will, will find out this morning what it takes to be saved and that the Lord wants to adopt them as a son or daughter. They'll take care of business. That's the most important thing they could do. And two, if they're already saved but not making an impact, they'll find out how easy it is, why they're not, and how easy it is would be to switch, Father. So open the ears and eyes of our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I get to that verse, gang... Before I read that to you, I want to ask you something about the Bible. What makes the Bible different from other books? Throw it out there. We're a small, you know, intimate crowd. What makes it different? Not the pages, not the cover. Well, some of Bibles have leather covers. That's different from most books, right? But I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for something a little deeper. What makes the Bible? Throw out some things. Living active. Living active. That sounded like a young person. Who was that? I like that you're right. It's living and active. So that's one of the things I had down. It's alive. This book is described as being alive. It keeps going. It's not like you read it once. That's the end of the story. It just keeps unfolding. Let me give them to you since you're not throwing them to me very fast. Here it is. It's an extension of God. John 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word. It's talking about this. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. It's an extension of very God. It has power. Hebrews 4.12. You can write down these references, but we don't have to turn all over this morning. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. 
it's good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. We find all of that in one verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All right, what other book can make that claim? What other book can make that claim? In fact, there are major religions that have their books, and even they don't make those claims. They don't even attempt to because they can't back it up. So no other book makes those claims for one big reason. No other book is written by God Almighty. Watch this. All this being true, however, none of these benefits that this great book has are automatically applied to you, the believer, even if you want them to be. It's not automatic. Just like salvation and adoption is automatic, sanctification, the process here on this earth of you becoming more like Jesus Christ is not automatic. You could actually sit there as a baby Christian, saved when you're maybe 10 years old, and look like that for the next 50, 60, 70 years and never grow. Even though physically we would look at that and think something is, is really seriously wrong physically when somebody doesn't grow and they're 15 years old and they're still a baby in a crib. But we look at it all the time in the spiritual life and we think, well, that's all right. They just opted out to go a different route. But no, it's actually an alarming statistic. It's actually an alarming thing when you do not grow. See, God expects certain things from us. That's why at the moment of salvation, you were not beamed right up to heaven. Anybody get beamed right up to heaven and just come down just to be with us? And, no, good. You weren't beamed up to heaven because there's certain things you and I won't be doing and really can't be doing in heaven. And I, I repeat this a lot. I tell you guys this all the time. You can't sin in heaven, thank goodness. You can't sin in heaven. You can't evangelize in heaven. I suppose you could, but you look really ridiculous telling people about how to go to heaven when you're in heaven and telling people about Christ. So he left us here with a mission, and I guarantee you it includes one of those two things, and I'll let you decide which one it is. It's not that hard. We weren't left here to sin in the party. We were left here on a mission to tell others about Christ, and that's the, the basic, most simple beginning of it. We were left here on a mission to go and make disciples, to go and make disciples. Now, some people might say, well, we can't do that. Only God can do that. God's the one that draws the people to him. God's the one that saves. And so I don't do this because that sounds contradictory, Pastor. If God does that, there's really nothing I could do anyway, so I'm just going to sit and wait, kind of uh, mull around and stuff until he returns. And then, well, no, if we can't do that and we had nothing to do with that process, then he wouldn't command us to go and make disciples. Apparently, we can make disciples. Followers. Now, we can't save them and get them adopted, but we can train them and help them to become more like Christ and lead them in the right way. So we're told to go and make disciples. But listen, just like the NFL teams, I'm going to give you this example. Maybe this will help. Who are all going through a certain part of the season right now. They're all playing exhibition games, right? And they're getting ready for the season. This isn't the mission. The mission of playing professional football isn't to get through the exhibition season. In fact, in the exhibition season, there's a lot of working out. It's not that they don't work out in the regular season, but they work out really hard now. In fact, if you play even high school football, you work out really hard before the season starts. There's two weeks that are called Hell Week. That should be Hell Weeks, but it's Hell Week for whatever reason. It usually lasts about two weeks. Then say they could count. They're just athletes, football players. So what they do is they work out really hard. They play these exhibition games, and they're getting ready for the mission. And the mission is to play and win games and hopefully get into the playoffs and win those with the ultimate goal of getting to the Super Bowl and winning that. That's the mission. But, gang, you can't get anywhere on the mission if you're not even in shape and you don't know the plays, you don't know how to play the game. Then it's not going to be mission accomplished. It's going to be mission not even started. 
So what I'm afraid, a lot of churches and a lot of individuals don't make an impact because they're still stuck back at the exhibition games and going through the motions, but they've never started the season, which is a partnership with God. It's a partnership with God. It means God does expect you to do some things. Now, is it just me, or do a lot of Christians, an alarming amount, appear a little foggy on exactly what our mission is? Have you ever noticed that? Does it seem like a lot of Christians aren't quite sure even though it's written about over and over and over again in the pages of the Bible, most Christians, and, and you know, you live in a country where 85% of, of people say they're Christians, and yet I would say not even 10% of them can mouth the mission that Jesus left us with. It seems like they're a little foggy on it. I was wondering if it was just me. By your response, I'm going to say it's just me. But I think that they're a little bit foggy. So, while we are left here on earth, what do you figure we're supposed to do? You can take people's word for it, or you can look at Christians and can look at their behavior. And the reason I think it's a little foggy, because as I look at them, it looks like they're off mission. Does anybody see that? It looks like Christianity as a whole is just kind of milling around and waiting, confused, right? Hey, I'm a believer. Great. What are you doing for Christ? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I walked an aisle when I was young. I raised my hand. I said I believed. I, I assented to, I, I said, those facts you just said about that guy, I believe that, so I'm saved, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. Well, there's a lot of problems with that because not only do you have a mission, but God very much expects you to be about that mission, not to be milling around, waiting. I don't know. I'm saved. I don't know why he didn't beam me up. I got 80 years here. I guess I'll just have fun, and hopefully everything will work out. No, and God doesn't look too kindly upon that either. In fact, that's ridiculous. We do have a mission, and before that mission can even get started, we all need to get going on the sanctification process. Now, don't let that word scare you. That's just a 10-cent word on the process of developing the character of Christ or developing virtue like Jesus. I don't use that word much. A lot of, there's a lot of Christianese that I don't use a lot for a couple reasons. One, you don't see a lot of people use it. Two, the few people that do use it these days don't seem to have the same definition about it. So let's just cut this process down. And I, I will mention a couple times this morning for you guys, but let's just cut this, break this process down. The process that you and I are supposed to undergo the moment we're saved, it starts the second you're saved and then for the rest of your life, is the process of following Jesus and becoming more like him. The process of becoming more like the one that you follow in virtue, in character. So, you might want to write this down. It's not in your notes, but it's very important. Well, how is character transformed? What sort of a process is it, Pastor Rob? I love how N.T. Wright puts this. According to him, there's three things. In order to have your character and just to get started, to get out of the exhibition games and to get ready and have your character develop like Jesus, you have to aim at the right goal, first of all. There's three things. But number one, you've got to aim at the right goal, and the right goal will be Jesus. If you're aiming in character for Buddha, it's not going to happen, Right? Aim at the right goal. Second thing is figure out the steps that you need to take to get to that goal. How far away it is? Who is it? Well, what do I need to do to get from here to there? And finally, those steps have to become habitual. Now, the rest of our time together, we're going to talk about what those steps are because they're really blunt, really plain in Scripture, and you'll recognize them probably right away, or at least most of them, so you're going to sit there and go, but I know these. I know these steps, but I look at my life, and I don't see that much difference, and I'm going to tell you why. But the good news is, it may be convicting, but the good news is you can change it today and actually see a transformation. So let's go back. Here's the first thing I want to share for you in transformation. 
receiving the scriptures. That's the first thing we need to learn to do. Feed off the Bible. Receive the scriptures. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, let's get back to that now. It says, like newborn babies, we should crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now, why like newborn babes? What's unique about them? Well, for one, they seem to desire milk all the time, right? And a lot of times it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's the most inconvenient time. You could be studying. You could be asleep, and it's 3 in the morning. you got a brand-new baby. They're going to wake you up. They're not going to crawl into the room and go, Mom, Dad, is this a good time? No, they're definitely not going to do that. They don't care what time it is. They just have this craving. They have this desire. They want milk, sometimes the most, inopportune times. But it's a craving that doesn't go away while they're newborn babes. Now, that doesn't mean when you're a newborn Christian you should crave the Word of God only, and then you grow out of that. Because notice the text does not tell us to be like them only if we're newborn babes. And not just when we're in, the, when we're in that short little window of being a newborn babe. It says all the time, just flat out, there is no time frame on there. Just be like them. Even as we are senior citizens, even as we are coming to the end of our days on this earth, be like newborn babes who crave milk. Milk here is the word of God. So that's the first thing I want to ask you. Because it's the first sign that you need to look for. Do you hunger for the Word of God? When you haven't spent time in the Word of God for a while, do you miss it? Do you miss it? Or is it just like, you know, I haven't spent time in the Word of God for a month and I, I don't miss it at all. It's alarming. It's alarming. Something's wrong because you are a newborn babe and, and, the, and the desire's gone there. Now, last week we talked about how much more power there is in unity than there is in going it alone as a Christian. When people in a church have the mission and the vision and they understand and everybody's together and unified and joyful about it, there's way more power or velocity for the impactors together than one impactor. Well, if all the members of a local body are in the Word of God daily, the result will always be unity in the body. The result will always be unity in the body. Why? Because the things that disunify, well, if you're in the Word daily and you're doing things that disunify, like gossip or undermining things like that, you're eventually going to come to Scriptures that tell you that what you're doing is wrong. So you're going to come to a crossroads, and you're either going to have to deal with it or say, I'm not going to read the Bible anymore because I want to gossip. I don't want to be unifying. But eventually, it's going to get to you. And that's why one of the things that we hope to get to in our life groups is sermon-based uh, life groups. We want to be able to offer, you know, a, a sermon series like we're going through Luke. And yes, we're going to get back to Luke in our RX series. But imagine if we're talking about, say, the sixth chapter of Luke, first 10 verses, and I preach on it. And it just whets your appetite and you get kind of hungry for it, but you want to know more. And maybe you haven't studied the Bible. Maybe you're a pretty new Christian. You don't really know how to go deeper. Well, when you arrive at your life group that week, they'll still be taking that passage and we'll have questions and things to drive it even deeper. We believe that that's going to really impact the unity of the church as a whole. Now, I look at Impact Church, and here's one thing. This might ruffle you a little bit. might even offend some of you. That never bothers me, but here it is right here. There's age differences. There's a lot of age differences right here in this room right now. I know there are different political upbringings, backgrounds, philosophies. We definitely have a couple of Republicans. If you don't know it, they'll tell you eventually. We have a few Democrats. I've seen a few Obama stickers on cars, too. And some of you are going, I didn't know that. I don't know. We don't have unity. That can't. No, we've got all kinds of differences in this church. Different upbringings, definitely different philosophies, and even Southern folks and Northerners. What would that be? Rebels and Yankees? Still? War's over, please. But there it is. Midwesterners. My wife's a Midwesterner. 
and sort of Heinz 57. I'm from all over the place, so I don't really know who I am when it comes to that. People with different backgrounds, when I look at that gang, I can't help but smile because here's the deal. Let's be honest. There ain't no way we would gather unless it was for the Word of God, right? What other reason would we gather when a group is that diverse unless there was something powerful enough to bring people of all kinds of backgrounds and political beliefs and whatever together? And that powerful thing is the Word of God. It's very, very unifying. But, so we've got to crave it, but we've got to be purposeful about it. No matter how good the, uh, let me use this example because I love my wife's cooking. No matter how good the home-cooked meal is that my wife makes one day and has waiting for me, if I stop at Chick-fil-A and order the spicy chicken, because that's my favorite, with the waffle fries and the uh, supersized Coke Zero, and that's not enough, so I get four chicken tender strips and another set of waffle fries and chase it down with a, is it cookies and cream milkshake that they have there? Don't act like you don't know, because this is, I, you know, there's long lines at Chick-fil-A all the time. Don't, don't tell me you're never in it. And I chase it down. No matter If I do that, no matter how much I usually love her meals, when I get home, I will not be interested in what she's prepared. I'm just not. I'm not going to be I can't make myself. Not if I'm that stuffed with junk. Oops. Did I say junk? Not if I'm that stuffed with fast food. Again, likewise, when people stop reading the Word of God or studying, it's usually because they're filling up on something else. Just because they're filling up on other philosophies, on other worldviews, or having or TV or whatever, and just having it crammed down their throat so much, or being so oversaturated with it, by the time you get to the Word of God, you don't want it. You're already full, and full of the wrong things. Now, turn in your Bibles to Romans. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Whenever I say that, I don't hear a lot of pages turning. Is that because of technology? Are you turning your iPads? Is that why? Or are you just going, oh, it's going to be up on the screen most likely. I'm not turning there. Well, gang, I really do want you to bring your Bibles and learn how to get around in them. Don't always count on it being on the screen, especially with how many technological things have gone wrong this morning. It could very well not be there. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, I look at this, and it says, well, don't conform. But you know what I see with a lot of Christians? Conformists. I see a lot of conformists who feel like the best way to live life, I think, is to just live and let live. Just conform to whatever comes down the pike. And as long as it's not sinful, we'll just back up a little bit more. We had this line, I know, and we said we would never cross it or, or never let society cross it or we'd be bold. But when they do it, it's not really affecting me, so we'll just back up a little bit. Have you noticed our culture doing that? Have you noticed us voting for laws and just kind of making the box smaller and smaller? And what are Christians for the most part doing? I mean, in a country that's 85% Christian, we ought to be able to shut down any law that's against God's word, but we're not able to do it. Why? Because instead we're conforming. So we're just backing up a little step and going, I can live in this box. I, you know, I used to think I needed a lot of room, but I find that it, it can be really small. But this says don't conform. We're supposed to be leaders, not conformers. Instead, be transformed, and then it tells you how to do that. First of all, though, the term conformed, sushimatsio, sounds like Japanese, doesn't it? Most of the time, Greek doesn't sound like that. This one does. It literally means to be molded or stamped according to a pattern. Molded or stamped, like on an assembly line. So it says don't be molded or stamped into the pattern of this world. Because by the time you're immersed in it or been molded or stamped or conformed and pushed and prodded and reshaped like that, 
you're not going to have the willpower or even maybe the desire to get out of it any more than a penny would get off the minting line if it saw that it was going to have Abraham Lincoln stamped on it. It said, I don't want it's not going to want to get off. It's just going to say, I can live with that. It can't. Penny won't do that. A Christian being conformed after a certain point won't want to move. But instead, we're told to be transformers. And if you want to make an impact, you're going to have to be a transformer instead of a conformer. I don't remember who first said this. There's a lot of people claiming to say it, but I never forgot. I think it might have been C.S. Lewis a long time ago. But he said, listen, you're either a thermometer or a thermostat. You're either a thermometer or a thermostat. What does a thermometer do? I mean, no matter what the temperature is out there, it conforms, right? I mean, if it's 90 degrees outside, that is going to show you it's 90 degrees. It's not going to make it 100. It's not going to lower it to 85. It has no power. It can just reflect what's already out there and conform. But what does a thermostat do? It leads. It pushes. So if, you, if it's 90 degrees in your house and you want it to be cooler, a thermostat will bring it down and lead. We are called to be thermostats, not thermometers. Why can't we change culture? Why aren't we making an impact? Because we are thermometers, for the most part, not thermostats. What's it mean to be transformed? Is this like the batter in a hitting slump who suddenly comes out and starts hitting real good, and sometimes the announcer will say, well, man, he's an entirely new person. Well, no, not really. He might still be a jerk, but he can bat a little better now. He's just in a little slump, and it changes. So I'm not really talking about something slight like that. Is this like the kid who got all C's and then had a summer of tutoring, and now he's getting A's and B's? That's like a whole new kid. Not really. Not really. I mean, we can point to what this is a little bit. Or the person you haven't seen for a while who lost a bit of weight. That's a whole new person. That's just a diet. No, this is talking about something different, isn't it? The word for transformation here is the, word, the Greek word metamorpho. Metamorpho. Let me give you what that literally means. Literally to change into another form entirely. So when Paul says be transformed instead of conforming, he's talking about be changed from what you were to something entirely new, spiritually. In fact, when you're born again, it says if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation, Scripture says. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Here's another thing, another part of the definition. It comes from the word metamorphosis, and it's used to describe the change that takes place, obviously, like a caterpillar in a cocoon becoming a butterfly. Completely different form. Same creature, but a different form now. Now, if you decide you want to be a part of making an impact, if you really want to be an impactor, and you want to make a biblical transformation toward the character of Jesus Christ, then Paul tells us, here's how it's done. It's done, what did that scripture say? Be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. So you've got to take your mind, and you're going to have to somehow make it new. How do we renew the mind? Before we get to that, let's back up one more time. Let's see how we know that we're transformed. It's the virtue deal again. According to N.T. Wright again, virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices become second nature to us. Did you get that? Because, I mean, some of you are probably thinking when it becomes first nature. No, I didn't say first nature. Let me say this again. Virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices become second nature to us. The reason it's not first nature is because as sinful human beings, our first nature is, is to do things selfish. Our first nature is to be foolish. Our first nature is to be fearful, not courageous. So how can we make it second nature, God's nature, to just default to what's wise and courageous? Because that's what being transformed really is. So virtue, well, it's a process, gang. 
Virtue and character building is a process. And Paul teaches all through the New Testament that that process should naturally follow right after the moment of the greatest gift that we could possibly imagine, salvation. All right, so if you're in the book of Romans now, you need to know this. Paul spent the first 11 chapters of Romans building this case for how great salvation really is, as though it needed any case built. We're going to hell, and now we're saved. We were on our own, and now we're adopted into the family of God. That's pretty great. And that was just like two verses worth right there that I just made up. But he spends 11 verses saying, it's incredible. Here's, here's what it really means. Here's what he really did. Here's how he really suffered Jesus. And then you get to these certain points where he'll stop and check along the way and say, by the way, do you really have it? And then he'll stop and check on the way and say, by the way, here's how you know. And then he'll stop and check the cop-outs, like in chapter 6 where he says, you know what? God's grace and mercy is so huge that you can't even out-sin God. He'll still love you. But then he'll stop and go, but if you're trying to out-sin God, you better check because something might be wrong. So he builds this whole case about how great salvation is and how you can know you really have it and how it's legitimate and how we ought to respond. And then here in verse 12 is in light of that salvation, in light of what I've said for 11 chapters, the following, 12, the following chapters from 12 to 16 is how you and I should respond to so great a salvation. What should be the natural response? In fact, Paul believes, and so do I for that matter, that you haven't really learned the Word of God until you live the Word of God. You haven't learned the Word of God at all until you live it. In fact, in Jesus' days, the most cantankerous, bothersome, troublemaking people he dealt with were the religious people, some of whom had the Torah memorized. Memorized. Now, be careful. Some people think that discipleship is all about learning facts about this book and that the better you are at Bible trivia, the more mature you must be. But listen, the best people at Bible trivia, they would have just spanked any one of us and that would have been the Pharisees. But they weren't living it. They weren't living it. And Paul makes it real clear. Until you're living it, you ha it's not in you at all. So here's how he starts out in chapter 12, the verse that we didn't read, verse 1, not 2. But he says, in light of all that, here's what you ought to do. You ought to present yourselves a living sacrifice. By the way, he doesn't say you ought to surrender yourselves or you ought to yield yourselves. You know why? Because those, those sort of have within them a, a little bit of reluctance, right? Surrendering has a little bit of reluctance. Okay, I give up. Here it is. Or yield, it shows you're fighting it a little bit. Instead, in light of all that, in light of all the blessings of salvation, what Paul's saying, you know what you ought to do? You ought to bring your whole self, your body, spiritually, emotionally, physically, everything to God and present it as a gift excitedly and joyfully to him. That would be the natural response. Not surrender it at that point. Surrender is salvation, but we present unto success beyond that, unto sanctification. And he says, all of yourselves, present yourselves. Not, hey, here's where you need to make a deal. In light of the first 11 chapters, you need to present at least 35% of yourself to the Lord to get started. No, he says, all of yourself. In light of all that, why are you holding anything or why would you hold anything back? It's all in or all out. Present yourselves for duty, he's saying, in operation sanctification. And the first act of duty is to start receiving the Word of God. All right? Now, we got three more to go, so I better hustle. What's the second thing? I want you guys to figure out. Watch this and see if you can figure out what the second thing is. It's vital. Did you catch it? It's vital. Hope you didn't miss it. In fact, it's so important for some of you that did, I'm just going to tell you what it is. 
It's what Francis Chan called the missing person of the Trinity. Who do you suppose that is? It's the Holy Spirit. I mean, God, we sort of wrap our mind around at least the elementary beginning stuff. He's the creator. He's the big guy in the sky. And we have different images of him. Most of them are wrong. Jesus we can get because there's so much description of his physical time here on earth. But the Holy Spirit, we don't get that. We don't know what to do, a lot of Christians, with the Holy Spirit. Spirits are scary. Sometimes it's called the Holy Ghost. Ghosts are scary. What have you been taught to do when you see a ghost? Run. The only friendly ghost I ever heard of is Casper. So we look at this and we think, I, it's awkward. I don't know what to do. However, the Holy Spirit, as a result of a lot of fear and misconception, ends up being a missy person. And the Holy Spirit, though, is the one who empowers the believer to be an impactor. So we have a problem, don't we? If that's where the power comes from and you don't know what to do with them and you're kind of scared of them so you leave them to the side, you're not going to be an impactor. Can't. Can't possibly. Let me tell you why it's such a huge concern. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, teaches, empowers, leads, sanctifies, regenerates, bears witness, anoints, washes, emboldens, seals us, sets us free, reveals to us God's love, transforms us, enables us, and comforts us when we hurt. And those are just some of the more than 50 things the Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit does. So let's just cut to the, to the chase here. You know what that tells me? You can't even live the Christian life in the smallest, most elementary way without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You don't have an option of just putting it aside and being vibrant. It's not going to happen. He regenerates. In fact, you won't even be saved without him. Because the one that comes to live in you, when Jesus comes to live in you, it's the Holy Spirit who comes to live in you. Guess who sanctifies? Guess who helps you in that process of becoming more like Jesus throughout your life? The Holy Spirit. So you can't even get saved. And if you do manage to connect with them and get saved and then not understand sanctification, you will never grow because he empowers that as well. We need the Holy Spirit for everything. For everything. So we not only need to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our maturing in the Christian faith, we have to completely rely on him. And that's the second thing. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Now, Again, is it just me, is a question for you, or isn't it a reasonable assumption that someone with the living, almighty God of the universe living inside them and dwelling inside their body should act or look a little bit different than the average Joe who doesn't have God? Is that just me, or, or is, that a, is that an okay assumption to make? Is that a leap? Is that a leap? No, I mean, it should, right? Okay, what if I told you I had an encounter with God last night? I like to do triathlons, and... And I have a lot of fun doing those. And so I had an encounter with God last night, and he said, Behold, I am going to make you a supernatural swimmer, better than Michael Phelps could even dream of being. You will be faster. You will be more sleek. You will shatter all records. And I tell you, I had that encounter, and therefore, guess what, gang? Don't even try to swim against me because that's the new me. And then you go to a triathlon. There's one coming up at Cane Creek. And some of you go, Man, I just want to go. I'm going to be in this thing. I know I can't win because Pastor Rob's there, and he's supernatural. When it comes to swimming. But we go to the starting deal, and the bell goes off, and we're in the lake there at Cane Creek, and everybody starts swimming. You're looking back, and you go, man, I, I, I was expecting kind of a bullet, a jet ski-type swimmer to go by me. Where's, and you see me. I haven't even gotten five feet. I'm just about to drown. I'm going under. And I managed to get a doggy paddle going a little bit, and I'm headed for the first buoy. And the second worst time, just to get to the first buoy, the second worst time all around is 25 minutes. It's a pretty bad time, all right? Only it's taking me 45 minutes just to get to that buoy, at which time I'm so exhausted I cry out for the emergency canoes that come get me, triathlon over. All right? Just wondering, 
after the race is over, wouldn't some of you have some doubts about my encounter? Would you start going, hey, Pastor Rob, I want to believe in you. I want to trust you. But you said you encountered God, and he gave you the superman. You can't even stay afloat. You can't even float on your back. I don't expect you to be average. I expect you to shred all of us. You can't even swim. Well, that's what we see in the Christian world. And that's why, gang, the world looks at the church and says it's full of hypocrites. Because they want answers. They want something different. But they look and they go, but you're not that much different from me. You're not even that much different from me. I don't see more power. In fact, I see you get angry. I see your, your whole attitude is the same. Shouldn't it be different if Almighty God lives within us? Well, maybe Almighty God lives within you, but you're not relying on him. All right, so we can't break. It would take a whole series to talk about the Holy Spirit. I want you to trust me on this and just know, take a leap of faith with me, knowing that it, let me just recommend a couple of, of things about the Holy Spirit that you can do on your own to help you with this, but, but, but you're going to need his power. Here's a couple of books I think you can get. I'll give you three of them. The Holy Spirit by Billy Graham. It's actually a great book on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit by Billy Graham. Experiencing the Holy Spirit by Andrew Murray. Experiencing the Holy Spirit by Andrew Murray. And Forgotten God by Francis Chan. Forgotten God by Francis. Three excellent books on the Holy Spirit that I highly encourage you. Now, they're not living, active, alive books like the Bible, but they'll walk you through the Bible and help you if you don't really understand because you've got to understand who he is that lives inside you and what he's offering you. He is the power. Suffice it to say, we can hardly rely on someone we barely know, right? Now, 2 Corinthians 3.18, let's look at that. And we all with unveiled face, 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Again, this is one of the clearest descriptions in the Bible about how we grow as Christians. And the key word, once again, is that same word, transformed. Which in this context describes a significant and fundamental change in our inner being, a metamorphosis in our inner being. This is the sanctification process again, the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's a twofold process. We're gonna break it down even more. When He makes you and me more like Jesus, there's two things that happen. One is He's gonna free us from the sin and our sinful traits more and more. He's going to release us. He's going to give us the desire, uh, no more desire for that. It's going to start lessening, and we're going to stop dropping off these things that control us, these sinful traits and these sinful habits. So that's sort of one part of sanctification. The other part is developing Christ-like traits within us over time that replace those sinful traits. So you're pouring out a little bit of the old you and pouring in more of Christ until in the end you look a lot more like him than the old you. And all of this is done, as the text says, one degree of glory to another. In other words, it's one step at a time. You might be saved in an instant, but sanctification takes a lifetime. In other words, if you ever meet a believer who's maybe 40 or 50 years old and go, I'm not working on sanctification anymore because I've arrived, that's somebody who definitely hasn't. Run from that person. Because you don't stop doing this until you see Jesus face, face to face. It's a lifelong process. Now, here's how you and I can accelerate that step-by-step -step process. Because, listen, I've seen people that have been a believer for one year that seem stronger and more on fire for people I know that have been believers their whole life since they were a little kid, 20, 30, 40 years. Why? Because somehow they accelerate the process. And if you're interested in that this morning, here's how you can do it. 
Two things. One, in obedience. Do you know every time you disobey God, it grieves the Holy Spirit and it slows down or completely stalls the sanctification process until you get it right. First John 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that gets it going again. But if you're living in sin, you have stalled the sanctification process. If you're going, well, I have this life over here that I lead, and I have this life over here, and, and I think God doesn't mind, he minds. You're kidding yourself if you think you're growing. Disobedience stalls it out. Therefore, it naturally follows that our obedience in ever-increasing situations accelerates our spiritual growth. Truth is, our, our motivation for commitment to Him and our discipline and obedience is, is more important to God than our performance. And even better than the sacrifices we make for God. You know, your obedience to God is more important than even a huge one-time momentary sacrifice. Where do you get that, Pastor Rob? Write this down. You don't have to turn there, but write 1 Samuel 15, 22. Which says, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying his voice? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, some of you are going, well, of course it's better than the fat of rams. That's gross. But that's just what they sacrificed back then. That means it's better than giving a lot of money. It's better than one momentary speech or, or one day when you witness to a few people and, and maybe they come to know and they say, I'm done. I've, I've, I've matched more people. You know, I've beat most people. Most people don't even, don't even win one person to Christ. I won three so I can. No, that, that's a momentary sacrifice. He's saying to just live a life of obedience means a lot more to God than any sacrifice. So that's in obedience. Here's the second thing, in prayer. The second thing is in prayer. I want Impact Church to live up to its name. I want us to be full of impactors. I want us to impact not just this little area of Waxhaw, but to branch out beyond this and gang. One of the things that's got to change is more of us need to find the power of prayer. Now, where's Nicole? Is Nicole Fister in here? Where are you, Nicole? She may be out and about. Come. She's in prayer, of course. Sends me stuff almost every day on prayer and how she's praying for this church and what God's telling her and all. There's power in that woman's prayer. And there's power in the, in the, in the prayer team. I mean, they're sort of the engine that's running this thing. But how much more powerful could it be? Remember when I said that how much more powerful our church and how much more impacting if we're all in the daily, daily in the Word of God? Same thing for prayer. If we are all putting prayer as high a priority as Nicole Fister, there would be no stopping Impact Church. I promise you, this, this whole, the whole eastern seaboard would have never seen a movement like the one that simply prays. So be obedient and be prayerful. The Bible's talking to us. Prayer's us talking to God. Without one or the other, it's a one-sided conversation. You can't hope and grow. Here's the third thing. By remaining close to God during life's trials. Now, let's face it. Most of us don't think of being pummeled down and having trials and, and pain that just seem to mash us into the earth. We don't think of that as, wow, look at me, I'm soaring. Look at me, I'm growing. I'm really growing out of this. No, usually when stuff like that happens, we feel beat down. We feel like we're shrinking. We feel like we're getting smaller. But the Bible's real clear. It's that pruning and that pain and those trials that are really growing us. Guess what the reason is that you don't normally see people walk around with six-pack abs? All right, there's a couple reasons. One, I don't want to pull my shirt up. That's one. All right? No, I don't have six-pack abs. It's not there. I have what they call a keg that is hiding the entire thing. All right? 
But you know what the other reason is? Because we don't want to go through the pain of tearing down the muscles so they can be built back up and spending that kind of time in the gym. We just don't want to do it. If you want to do it, you might have that result. It's really where the saying, no pain, no gain, is true. started in the Bible. And it's actually seen all over nature, really. I mean, what are the most beautiful trees, the most beautiful bushes? The ones that you prune. And what is pruning? I mean, it's actually severing off limbs of that tree and that bush. It's cutting it down from a, a big size that looks pretty successful, and it's just shrinking it back so that it can blow up next time and be even more beautiful, majestic, and successful. Now, this I do want you to write down. Trials are God's primary method of bringing about spiritual growth in us. Trials are God's primary method. And by primary, I'm talking 99.9% of the time it's going to happen that way. That's why, believe it or not, you ought to celebrate when trials come. Not celebrate when somebody's hurt or there's loss or anything. That, it doesn't mean you don't grieve, but celebrate because God is just about to grow you. It's a stretching. And if you feel offended that I just said that, let me let James say it. He can take the hit. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, all kinds of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces growth, produces steadfastness, and let that steadfastness have its full effect or full growth that you might be perfect and complete. You know what that's saying? If you want to be perfect and complete and be an impactor, it's not going to happen outside of trials. That's God's pruning process. Now, before we leave the topic of trials, let me show you one more verse where this concept of discipline and pruning and all that leading to growth is made clear. This is actually about fathers. Raise your hand if you're a father here today. All right, got a lot of fathers. And listen up. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's the second half of this verse that I really want you to take a closer look at. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You said in a spiritual sense, discipline includes a whole lot more than spankings and timeout. In fact, that's probably not even in here. It's talking about something different. It encompasses all instruction, all reproof, all correction, as well as Jerry, Jerry Bridges puts this in his book, Growing Your Faith. Get this. It includes all providentially directed circumstances in our lives that are aimed at cultivating spiritual growth and godly character. How should you bring them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord? Any providentially directed circumstances in your life, any one of them, that are aimed at cultivating spiritual growth and godly character is good. Is good. All right, one more way that we can deepen our impact as individuals and as a church, and that is by responding to the body with your unique gifts to serve each other. And corporately, this is the biggest thing for a church, and sometimes where we fall. Turn quickly to Hebrews. If you don't know how to get there, then I'll read it to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says... And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's think of ways how to encourage each other, how to get each other going. Not neglecting to meet together, that's talking about church and small groups, as is the habit of some. You know, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, and what he's saying right here is some people are falling off and they're not coming to church very much, and they're wondering why their life's falling apart. He's saying, don't do that, do the opposite of that. Meet together and help spur one another along. When somebody's down, help them get back up. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You ought to do it more tomorrow than you did today and more next week than you did this week. Stir one another up means simply encourage or motivate. This is an emphasis that Paul makes here 
on the encouraging part. I mean, isn't it true that we all find our, our, our zeal and our enthusiasm for serving flagging or lagging, whatever you want to call it at times? Yeah, I mean, you don't have to admit it. You don't have to nod. Well, go ahead. This means, yeah, sometimes I don't feel like serving. Come on, come on, you can do it. Okay, you all just love it every time, right? You don't ever want to break. You never get burned out. Well, then you're the cream of the crop. But a lot of times people show up and they go, you know, what am I getting out of this? You know what? Nobody patted me on the back last week. You know, nobody sent me a note. You know, why am I really doing this? And, and we get discouraged. You can. And yet part of growth is very clear here. It says that we are to serve one another in the body. But there are times when you just don't feel like it. And at those times, you need to be present with the body, whether you serve or not. And others need to encourage that person and bring them up. Because it's part of this life that we're going to lag behind. Now, if you try to do life alone, you'll not only lag behind, you'll drop off completely. And listen, when you drop off from the herd, as they say, in the wild kingdom, that's when you can be picked off, right? You ever watch the shows with the lions, you know, in Africa? They don't go in the middle of the herd and go, listen, who thinks they're the toughest? I want a challenge. No, they may be the, the king of the jungle, the lions, but they look for the sickly, the young, or the crippled, and they look for the one that's kind of wandered off, and that's the one they go for. That's the one they go for. But we need to be meeting together so that we can encourage each other and get strong when we feel weak. This is addressed to all believers. Can I tell you who this is not addressed to? It isn't addressing some group of spiritual elite built for super serving. Oh, I'd like to serve pastor, but look at those guys serve. I'm really not up to that level, so I let them do it. No. And it isn't addressed to just the Marthas and Marys. And if you don't know that story, look it up in the New Testament. But one of them served, one of them didn't serve. There's, something, there's a whole story that's not just addressed to those who love to do it anyway. And it isn't addressed only to those who feel like serving. And it isn't addressed to those who feel this way. Take a look. Volunteering is a great way to get involved in the church and help out with important ministries and activities. But it takes so much time. And if you help out once, they'll ask you to keep helping out for every event in the future. That's why I recommend volunteering for something and doing a horrible job at it. I don't mean just being lazy or text messaging the whole time. I mean really getting in there and messing things up. Trip over things, knock things down, stain the carpet, maybe even start a small fire. Whatever it is, just be awful at it. This will ensure that they will never ask you to help again, and they won't expect you to volunteer for anything ever. You could also just politely decline when you're asked to help, but I believe actions speak louder than words. These have been... Deep thoughts from a shallow Christian. <laughs> kind of an oxymoron. Deep thoughts from somebody that's shallow. Now, you look at that and you kind of laugh, but gang, I've seen that. I've seen people that, and if you come and you grumble and you complain and you half-heartedly go through it, and I got to, and if you're somebody that's over 20 or 30 years old and you have a job, I ask you, would you do that for your boss? Would you do that in school? Would you do that when you know you're getting paid? Then why do we do that for the Lord? So I've given you the steps here this morning. They're, they're really pretty easy. And they've been easy for 2,000 years like this. But not a lot of people become impactors. Because you've got to apply them, like I said before. You've got to know what you're aiming at. Then you've got to know the goal that you're aiming at. Then you've got to know the steps to get there. And then you have to make them habitual in your life. Keep going because it's a daily process, step by step. It's addressed to all believers because all believers are expected to read the word, be obedient, pray, and serve. It's part of being in a family. Now listen, gang. 
Next week, we're going to have a, the message in this series called Personalize. And we've sort of gotten ahead of ourselves a little bit in this because we've talked about how we can have a deeper impact and, and we've talked about bracing for impact and as a church, how we can make a dent in this community and all that. But the fact is, you can't even have a small impact if you don't know Jesus. So a part of who we are is evangelism is a big part of our heart at Impact Church. So here's what I want you to do next week if Impact is your home. I want you to bring somebody that you know doesn't know Jesus because next week the gospel will go out. Next week the gospel will go out. But one thing we can do without any kind of equipment or even if all the sound and everything goes out and you show up next week and I don't have a we can still do this is the gospel can go out. It's simple and it's true and it will go out. One of the gifts that God has given me, it's not a bragging thing, it's just one of the gifts, and it'd be a shame if I didn't use it, is evangelism. So God will speak through me because he's always faithful. And as long as the lost are here, they'll come to know Christ. Your job is to invite them. We're an invite culture. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. Father, we barely scratched the surface on maturing and sanctification. I feel like it would take six months of a series on this. And we're going to have so much of this as we get back to Rx, Prescriptions for Abundant Living. I love going through Luke. But for right now, Lord, we've given some simple steps that you gave to me and your word is very clear on it. We don't need a lot more than this. If we want to be impactors, let's start there. Teach us to, to hunger and thirst for your word. Teach us to know what, how important prayer is and to talk to you. God, we know you already know what we're going to say. But it's like as a father, me talking to my son or daughter when they were just three or four, I pretty much know where this thing's going. But I love them, and I just want to hear them talk. I just want to relate to them. And that's how you are. There's nothing we're telling you that is news to you, but you love spending time with us. And teach us to serve and to find joy in it, Father. And teach us to cling and to rely on your Holy Spirit. Then we'll be transformed and metamorphosized into your image. And that's our goal. And what we ask for in your precious son's name, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. See you next week.